You're listening to the Elvis Ultimate Fan Channel Podcast, the channel that is devoted 100% to the life and career of the biggest selling recording artist of all time, with your host, Steve Francis. Hi, and welcome to this podcast from Elvis the Ultimate Fan Channel. Journalist Alan Nash is author of many highly acclaimed books, including Dolly, the biography of singer Dolly Parton, Golden Girl, the story of Jessica Savage, and Behind Closed Doors, talking with the legends of country music. She is probably best known for her award-winning books on the life and career of Elvis Presley, and I am delighted to say that I have Alana on the line to talk with me today. Hi, Alana, and welcome to this podcast. Well, Steve, thank you so much for having me on. I'm, I'm honoured, really, truly. Now, we've uh, been sort of friends on social media for quite a few years, but this is the very, very first time we've spoken to each other down the line, as it were. That's right. So I need to ask you a very deep and meaningful question, and that <laughs> is, <right. laughs> am I pronouncing your Christian name right, Alana? It's actually Alana. Alana, okay. Yes, but uh, it gets twisted all over and around and into lots of variations, so I, I answer to about anything, but thank you for asking. I appreciate that. <laughs> I thought I was close. I wasn't too far away. It's when people go Alana no. and they put Alana. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I think I've heard everything now. <laughs> so could, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background and uh, how you got into journalism and, and writing and so forth? Okay. Well, I was born and grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, and my parents were Tennesseans. My father was from East Tennessee, a little town called Paris, which is not all that far from Memphis. And my mother was from, oh, sorry, my father was from West Tennessee, and, and my mother was from East Tennessee. She was from Sevierville, uh, which is the town that Dolly Parton is from. And so, though I never lived in Tennessee, I'm certainly the product of two Tennesseans, and uh, uh, it's interesting to me that my, my mother came here first, and my father followed her here, and they married here. Uh, but my my mother and my father really wanted to uh, to get out of Tennessee because they hated anything that had to do with country music and country music culture. And uh, I fell in love with folk music when I was about uh, 13, but uh, I pursued that kind of semi-professionally, and I uh, uh, music was very important in our household. My father was a big devotee of classical music, and my parents started me on private violin lessons when I was five, and I took lessons uh, until I was 19 years old. And then I played in uh, rock bands, and as I say, I played folk music uh, semi-professionally, and I uh, played, played drums, I played guitar, I played all kinds of things, and music was just always, uh, as I say, it was really the center of my universe. And uh, the night that I saw Elvis Presley on the Ed Sullivan Show in 1956 was, was the seminal moment really of my life and my career and uh, nothing has been <laughs> quite the same since. It was like a light bulb suddenly switching on, was it? It, it was. It was, uh, you know, at, at, uh, I had just turned six years old and uh, my birthday is August 16th, which people sometimes have a hard time believing, but yes, it is. Mm -hmm. And so I had just turned six on August the 16th when he came on the Sullivan Show in September. And uh, I still actually remember this, of sitting in the floor uh, with my sister, who was nine years older, so she was a teenager and very into all things um, that teenagers are into, including at that time rock and roll. And um, I just 
it was just a moment of, oh my gosh, you know, I, I didn't know what he was doing and the way he was moving, and I couldn't have identified <laughs> what he was telegraphing with in those moves, but I knew that I liked it a whole lot at six. And uh, the, the music had a sound, of course, that I uh, was very, very different from the kind of music I was being brought up on, classical music. But uh, it was just an immediate transfiction uh, with, with him uh, as, as a person and the way he looked and the way he sounded. And it really, that moment really was, uh, set the entire path of my life. I would imagine you weren't alone, though, because uh, you must have affected millions and millions of people like that. Yes, yes, yes. Including myself. But, uh, <laughs> including yourself, right, yeah. right. Yeah. But so you ask about journalism, and uh, yeah. Uh, so even as a, a teenager, uh, again playing in bands and playing guitar, uh, playing drums, I was always interested in why musicians made the kind of music that they made, and I wanted to write about that. I had been writing little stories since about um, second or third grade, and so as a teenager, I began interviewing musicians and writing up little stories about them and mailing them off to magazines. And the first time I got one published, it was uh, 1965. It was the March issue of Seventeen magazine, Mar March 1965. And I wrote a little story about a folk music trio from my hometown. I had a crush on one of the boys in that uh, trio. And uh, <laughs> I thought it was, it was uh, I, I was hoping I would kill two birds with one stone. I was not having much luck getting his attention. And I thought if I wrote about him for a national magazine, this would seal the deal. And uh, I also wanted to, to write for magazines. I thought that was just, that would be an amazing thing to be able to, to write for magazines. And so that's, uh, and, uh, that's did, really how it all started. And, and did the boy look like Elvis? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's funny. Uh, just today I was in traffic. I was behind a, a young man on a motorcycle who looked very much like him from the back. He was tall and had uh, red hair and uh, played folk music. And yeah. he, he didn't look like Elvis. He didn't move like that. But the power of music was was something I was very aware of from a quite a young age. Yes. It, it, well, uh, music is a very personal thing anyway, isn't it? Very, mm -hmm. very personal. Absolutely thing. subjective. Yes. Yes. So your first book was, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Dolly the Biography. That's right. That's right. In 19, uh, 1978? In 1978. It had a different title. The first, the first title, uh, that book has had lots of different titles through the years. Uh, originally, it was just called Dolly with a big uh, exclamation point. Yeah. And then uh, in different, that was the 1978 hardcover edition. And then as it was republished uh, through the years, it had another title, Dolly, uh, The Early Years. I think that maybe it was Dolly Parton in the early years, and then Dolly the biography was the last, uh, the last title. Okay. But yes, that was the first, the first book, right? And uh, what, what, what came after that? Uh, the next book I did. Let me think about the sequence here because two of them came out at the same time. Well, it had to be the Alan Fortas book. I did a book with Alan Fortas of Elvis's Entourage, and I met him when when Elvis died in 1977 when I was in Memphis and um, Bill Burke who was the the Elvis guy at the Pressometer the newspaper and and I went down there with another reporter from from the Louisville paper we were sent on assignment to cover the funeral and 
all the uh, attending um, outcry about this death and uh, outpouring of grief about this passing. And, hmm. and so we stayed down there a few years, uh, sorry, <laughs> we stayed down there a few days. And um, uh, I went to the newspaper and I, to see Bill Burke, I didn't know him, but I was looking for somebody who covered that beat because I just didn't know who the people were, the connections to, to, to Elvis world at that point. And uh, Bill was so kind, he pretty much took me under his wing and took me um, everywhere he went for the next few days to interview people, and that's how I met Alan. So um, I was eager to, to tell his story. I liked him so much. He was a, he was a very affable, uh, lighthearted guy, one of, the, one of the guys that Elvis took into the entourage because he made him laugh. And uh, I, I also wanted to learn how to ghostwrite, and so I was working on that book for Alan, at the same time, I was working on a, uh, a compendium of interviews that I'd done with country music artists, uh, which is called Behind Closed Doors, talking yes. with the legends of country music. Yes, that's right. I, so, I, I mentioned that in the intro, yeah. Yes. And so that book and the, the Allen book came out pretty much at the same time. Uh, the sad thing was that Allen died just a matter of weeks after his book came out. Yes, so. uh, Allen died in 1992, I believe. Oh, that's right. Then it didn't come out until '92. Thank you. You have to correct me about when my own books came out. <laughs> um, Behind Closed Doors came out in '88, but I was um, working on those two books at the same time, and that's right. It came out in '92, and then he died um, not not very long after that. Now that one was called um, Elvis from Memphis to Hollywood. That's right. Uh, um, mm -hmm. But I don't think it's as well known as the follow-up, which is Elvis Aaron Presley. Revelations from the Memphis Mafia. Well, Alan was supposed to be part of that book. Ah, I was going to uh, ask. I was going to ask you: Was yeah. it just the three, or was there somebody else involved? It was. It was Alan, and then he died. So, um, uh, but but that's how I met with Marty. Marty called me and um, asked me if I would like to do that book. Um, it, it's interesting to think how different it might have been with Alan's input. Uh, but it was just the three of them, and uh, there are lots of <laughs> lots of stories to tell about the research and writing of that book. But but you know one one question people ask me is why did the uh, a follow up edition have a different title? Mm -hmm. And uh, when the original hardcover came out from HarperCollins, which is you know quite a reputable publisher, and I was thrilled to to have it come out from HarperCollins. But we always wanted to call it Elvis and the Memphis Mafia because that's what it was, and it's easy to remember. So our editor, who was a lovely guy, uh, didn't like the title. And so he said, I think we should call it something, you know, a little sexier or a little hotter or something like <laughs> Revelations from the Memphis Mafia. So we said, yes, but you have to have Elvis as the first part of the title because there are all of these Elvis books. Yes. So that when people go to look for them, they think of Elvis first. And so Elvis needs to be first in the title. So they named the book Elvis Aaron Presley with the subtitle of Revelations from the Memphis Mafia. But the way the book jacket was designed the top of it says Elvis Aaron Presley, and then, the, then there's a photograph of the guys with Elvis, 
And then underneath that, it says Revelations from the Memphis Mafia. And I think partly because of that design and partly because Elvis fans, well, they already knew it was about Elvis. So it came to be known as Revelations from the Memphis Mafia. <clears throat> yeah. The problem is that when they went to look for it, it was not filed under R, it was filed under E. And in the book catalogs that publishers used, or bookstores used rather, to order books, it was filed under E because the, the real name of the book is Elvis Aaron Presley, Revelations from the Memphis Mafia. So it got confusing, and uh, it came out again in a, in a paperback edition, also by HarperCollins, and then it was out of print for a while. And then I took it to, to England, to a, a publisher there called Aurum, and I said, you know, the guys and I have talked about this, and we would really like to change the, the title of it. And I went through all this with them, and I said, you know, people just don't call it by the real name, and it's much easier to remember uh, Elvis and the Memphis Mafia. So they did that, and we were quite happy about that. What we were not happy about is that uh, because they wanted to bring the, the book in at, at a pretty affordable cost, they needed to ditch the majority of the photographs and just use two at the front. And somehow that didn't get telegraphed to us before it came out. And then when I saw that, I was really upset. And I don't remember uh, how upset the guys were, but I, I just thought those photographs were essential to telling that story. And um, with the name change and not the photographs, I think there's been some confusion about whether it's a different book or a, or a book with some new material, and it caused it's caused me some embarrassment, honestly. Uh, and I hope that the, the the publisher has only 195 copies left as of uh, yesterday, actually. And if we are uh, if they decide to give up the, the the printing to it and we get it back. Um, I want to make sure that the photos are restored if there's a, another edition. So they're down to 195 copies. Is that yes. Right? Wow. That's it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, if anybody wants uh, a copy, they better snap it up quick. You better hurry up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's right. Um, over what period of time uh, did you conduct the interviews? Just just for anybody that doesn't know, it was Marty Lacker, Lamar Fike, and uh, his cousin Billy Smith. Uh, who, right. who, you, who you interviewed. So, so uh, over what period of time did the interviews take place? And were, were, did you interview them together or, or separately? I interviewed them together for kind of a marathon session that I believe lasted two days in Memphis. And I interviewed them all separately in Memphis, in Louisville, and on the phone. Okay. So... Uh, it was very, very interesting to see the different kinds of material that came out of them when they were all together, as opposed to interviewing them separately. And interviewing them together was really a test of all of my journalistic skills because you just, one would say one thing and then they, they would go off. You know, they just start talking and trading stories and, and it was very hard to get a question in there somehow or, <laughs> or a follow-up question. Well, wait, what did you mean by the... So uh, it was it was it was like chasing a locomotive. It was an amazing experience to do that, but you know, just fascinating. And, you, and as far as how long did it take, um, I've lost track of how long it took. Six years to write, to do the research and the writing on the Colonel, but for the um, the Mafia book, I I would guess it took 
four to five years. It was a long wow. time. Wow. And, uh, yeah, and at one point uh, we had a change of literary agent, and we lost our British deal. We had a deal with William Morrow over there, and then they bought the Goralnik books. And so they paid so much for Peter's books, this is how it was described to me, that, uh, and those were highly prestigious, and they knew they were going to be, so they canceled our contract. And so suddenly, we didn't have a, a publisher over there. And we knew that, you know, the bulk of the fans, really the, the serious fans, were, were always in England and throughout Europe, much more so than in America. So yeah, yeah. That yeah, that was um, that was really disheartening. I remember the day I got that news, and you know, it was a very, very difficult project because it was just it took some real length to tell that full story. And and Marty was very, <laughs> Marty was very concerned that that no one got more time on the page than he got. <laughs> <laughs> so. You know, there was a real concerted effort to make sure that guys got as equal time as possible. And then just telling, the, because I wanted to tell the story in an oral history form, because the way they spoke was so distinctive, you had to make sure you had everything covered so you could tell that story without jumping in as, as the author, although I had to do that a couple of times. So it was tricky, and uh, my publisher was really, you know, kind of screaming to hurry up and get this done. And then when they saw how long it was, I, it, they just had a fit because, uh, you know, I, I probably a lot of your listeners don't know this, but when a, when a book is acquired before the author actually writes it, the publisher figures out how much this book is going to sell for, uh, and then it tries to figure out how many people are going to buy it. And then the author's advance is predicated on that. So if they're counting on a manuscript to come in at a certain length and it comes in much larger, that means that it's going to cost them a lot more money to, to produce that book. And so when I turned that in, they, they just had a cow. And the other consideration was they knew that because they had bought what's called hard and soft rights, meaning hardcover and then paper, the first paperback rights, Mm -hmm. That meant the old-fashioned kind of drugstore stands where a book used to fit in racks at the drugstore. I'm, I don't even know if people still do that anymore, but mm -hmm. um, uh, I guess they do. But that book was so fat, it was so thick that they were concerned that they wouldn't be able to, it wouldn't fit in the racks with the rest of the books or the, the jobbers, the people who actually put those books in racks, would, would not want it because it would take up space that maybe another another book could fit in so yeah well I, I mean one. i i have mine here now and with the index it's uh coming up to 950 pages so that's quite a thick yeah. book as far as paperbacks <laughs> as far as paperbacks go anyway yeah, yeah it is uh, and so there was a lot of pushback you know to to, to shorten this thing but yeah. we just held our ground and we just weren't going to do it i did there was a lot i did take out but we, we, we weren't going to shorten it any more than uh, what, what we did yeah, I, I was just about to ask you, I, I was going to say, there's probably stuff that you didn't put in there as well, even, <laughs> it could have been 2,000 yeah. pages. <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right. And and then Marty wanted to do a, a sequel. Oh, wow. And uh, I, I think, you know, fans were interested in that, but Billy didn't want to do it. And, it. and I can understand that. It's very emotional. 
and and nobody made much money on it uh, except the publisher. I mean, we we sure didn't make much money on it. But you know that was not the the, the real intent. The the intent was to tell their story, and that was extremely important to them to tell their story because right after Elvis died, they got a lot of flack, including from Lisa Marie, uh, in, in a few years, that uh, they had, you know, failed him and let him die, so to speak, that they had not protected him and somehow kept him from accidentally killing himself. So, uh, you, you know, that, that was just a lot of emotion and, and more than making a few bucks, uh, it was important that they clear their hearts, I think, and, and, and tell their stories to the world about what it was like uh, to live with him day in and day out, which was not easy. And uh, did they uh, remember the same incidents differently? Uh, sometimes they did disagree, and uh, I loved that because, you know, you you take five people to witness a traffic accident, and you'll get five different stories about what yes. everybody just saw right in front of them. Yeah. Um, so I thought it was important to run all the variations of the stories and let the reader figure out what was real, what wasn't real, or what was more plausible. Uh, but I think some people thought that was a, you know, a negative, and that they they couldn't, uh, you know, where was the truth? And and I just thought it was humorous and human nature to 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 put all of those in there because that's the way people are. They remember things differently. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a very highly rated uh, book by literary critics and Elvis fans alike. Um, a lot of Elvis fans say it's their go-to book when they need to uh, find out something or try to refresh their memories. Uh, and myself included as well. I find myself referring to it a lot. It's more, it's more like an encyclopedia <laughs> of Elvis. Well, that's a lovely thing to hear because when it first came out, we just got pounded into the earth by a lot of the fans who didn't want to know a lot of that information. Hmm. And uh, we got both stellar reviews and we got terrible reviews. I remember it was on the People magazine worst of the year list. Wow. And then it was on other people's best of the year lists. So, uh, but it ran the gamut. And, and uh, I just remember so many of the fans being just extremely hateful. But, things changed through the years as a couple of things happened. One, people got more sophisticated about uh, medication and addiction and uh, realized that, that the book was not written with the intent to harm his memory, but to explain what happened. And uh, also, uh, Mr. Goralnik uh, used uh, a lot of it in his book. I mean, he, he quoted from it so much so that he actually paid the publisher uh, some money to do that, which was very generous of him. I'm not sure he really had to do that, but he used a lot of it. And, and that, um, you know, gave a stamp of approval to our book by a lot of uh, other people. So um, now I think people on the whole take it in the spirit in, in which we wrote it, which is, I'm very grateful for that. And uh, mo moving along after the success uh, of that book, you then followed it up uh, in 2003 with The Colonel, the extraordinary story of Colonel Tom Parker and Elvis Presley. Yes. And as you mentioned, actually, six years of exhaustive uh, research, including yes. including travel to uh, Parker's birthplace. 
in Breda in the Netherlands for documents and interviews. That's right. Now, we, we begin really with the circumstances of leaving Breda and traveling to the U.S. Uh, what, what do we exactly know about that? Because, uh, I mean, a lot of people now do know that he was Dutch-born, he was an illegal immigrant. But mm -hmm. what, under what circumstances did he have to, uh, you know, find himself having to leave Breda and, and uh, jumping ship uh, to the U.S.? Well, that was, of course, one of the big questions that I had going in because his family told me. I interviewed uh, one of his sisters. I interviewed his niece who, who had her mother living with her in her latter years, the sister who was next in line to, to the colonel. And I interviewed his nephew. And the family, uh, particularly the sister, remembered that uh, he had been to America before at, I believe, 17. And when he came to America the first time, there was a going away party for him. And uh, they were all, ex the family was excited that he was going and he kept in touch and, uh, and then came home and uh, everybody was glad to see him. Um, he brought gifts from America and it was you know, quite a wonderful thing. But when he left the second time, there was no announcement that I'm leaving. And in fact, nobody knew that he was leaving. He just left. And he, whereas the first time he had taken, he was very persnickety about his clothing. He, if his mother didn't iron his clothes just right, he kind of had a fit about that. But the second time, he took no clothing. He took no identifying papers. He took no money. He just left. Hmm. And uh, he left, quite frankly, in the dead of night. And he left his trunk with all of his stuff. So... The family, of course, was very perplexed about this, and they didn't hear from him for quite a while. Then, then they began receiving letters from him in which he would sign them Andre, and then Andre slash Tom Parker. So he was letting them know that he was assuming a new identity. He joined the U.S. Army, and he had money taken out of his pay and sent home to his mother, an allotment, it's called. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, they were never far from his mind. In fact, he had a, uh, I was able to ascertain that he had a buddy there who would keep an eye on the family and report to him the comings and goings and the, the major events of the family. But the letters just stopped. And they didn't hear from him from 1933 or so, 33, 34, uh, up until the time Elvis got out of the army. And one of his sisters was at the hair salon and opened a woman's magazine and there was a photograph of Elvis Presley on the train coming home from the army and she looked at the man standing behind him and she looked at him and she looked at him and she said my god that's our brother <laughs> and uh, who was identified as Tom Parker and, and the, the family got together and looked at the photograph and remembered that some of those early letters had been signed Andre slash Tom Parker and, of course, the family was just aghast and uh, wanted to know what had happened and why he had not been in touch with them all this time. In fact, his nephew then began writing letters, and that's kind of another whole story. But um, my question was, of course, what happened there? Uh, why did he leave so suddenly and cut off all cont contact with his family? 
And why did he not ever go home? And why did he not take Elvis to Europe, where there were always larger audiences for him than in America, really? So that was kind of the question going in. And um, then that led to some remarkable discoveries. Uh, and what was it that you discovered? Well, one of the things that I was curious about was his time in the army. I'm getting to the, to answer that, <laughs> the larger answer to your question. I'm kind of building up to that. Yeah, to yeah. Just hang with me for a second. I will, no problem. So uh, when I was in Holland, I, I, uh, Bill Burke and his wife Connie, his wife at that time, Connie, um, knew the colonel's niece. And uh, I was very, very interested in meeting her. And I wasn't, it was important to me that she see that I really was there as kind of the detective, that I wanted the same kinds of answers that she wanted about what had happened to him. Because when her mother was dying, she, uh, through Bill, got the colonel's office on the phone because uh, Leanne was the name of his sister, wanted to say goodbye to him. This is, again, this is the sister who was closest in age to him. And uh, I believe it was Loanne, his, his wife, or, or a secretary of some kind, who, who went to tell him that his sister was calling from Holland, that she was dying, that she wanted to say goodbye. And the answer came back that the colonel did not wish to speak to anyone from Holland. Mm -hmm. So the family was really put off by that, as you might imagine, and wondered why he could be so callous about this. So I was, I was there for, for an extended time uh, in Breda and uh, with this family. And before I left, they showed me an article in the Breda newspaper uh, written by Dirk Velenga, uh, or Velenga, uh, who had written uh, a previous book about Colonel Parker. Uh, but, but what I'm about to say now was not in that book. Uh, but he had done a, a series of articles for the Breda newspaper finding the colonel's family there. And he, he said in one of these articles that if anyone knew why he had left so suddenly and cut himself off from his family to please be in touch. And so he wrote this piece uh, based on an anonymous letter that he got in reply. And in this letter, the, the writer of the letter said that uh, he or she had been told by their mother-in-law years ago that if anything should come up about this Tom Parker, to say that his name was uh, Andreas Cornelius van Kauk and he had uh, murdered the wife of the greengrocer on the Bosch Strat, the street, the Bosch Strat. And um, so Dirk wrote, wrote a whole article about this, a sizable article about this, and the, the family dismissed this. And actually, they were angry about it. And they thought it was a horrible thing to write. Mm. And I. I honestly paid very little attention to it. It just seemed too out there. But of course I filed it away in the back of my mind, but it just seemed, I mean, it seemed as crazy to me as when we first learned that he was Dutch, when it was, in fact, I had been tipped off in 1977 that he was Dutch and I I just thought it was too crazy. But of course it turned out to be true. But but anyway, so I, I came back to, to Kentucky where I live and I began trying to get these army records of the Colonel because no one had ever gotten them, and I just thought the Army records often hold amazing pieces of information. 
And so I went uh, to find them in the usual way, and there was nothing available. And there had been a big fire of, of the, the, the really old army records in 1973 in St. Louis, Missouri, where they are, they are housed, or they were at the time. I think they still are, <clears throat> the majority of them. And so I read a book called How to Find Anyone Who Ever Served in the U.S. Military, and I did everything that that gentleman suggested I do, and I still came up with nothing. And so I called, I think his name was Lieutenant Colonel something Johnson, and I called him and I said, I've done everything there is to do, and now what do I do? And he said, well, if I were you, I would hire a records, an Army records research specialist by the name of Dick Beeland. And uh, I did, and Mr. Beeland first came up short, and then he just was ingenious, and he just kept plugging away, and he found uh, the majority of them uh, scattered throughout the country in different archives. And he also found uh, the letter of discharge, uh, which identifies uh, Tom Parker as uh, someone who uh, suffered from um, constitutional psychopathic state. Mm -hmm. Constitutional psychopathic state. It's, it's just a, one phrase in a whole paragraph about why they were giving him an honorable discharge, even though, as it turned out, the records bear this out. He went AWOL. He, he was a, des a deserter from the U.S. Army. Okay. But when they found him, they put him in solitary confinement, and they finally let him out and gave him an, uh, an honorable discharge because, essentially, he was crazy. So all of a sudden, now I had constitutional psychopathic state in black and white from the U.S. Army. And that made me go, gosh, you know, maybe this thing about a murder in Holland isn't so crazy after all. Right, right, yeah, yeah. And began investigating that. And it is, of course, only a theory. But that, to this day, that murder is unsolved. And I ended up getting the police record for that murder, and uh, that was a whole long involved situation, just getting that. And he, he's never identified, and there's no Interpol record for him. But when you read that, and when you look at the way he conducted his life, his entire life in America, yeah. you know in your heart of hearts that something happened that he couldn't fix. Yeah. And he could fix just about anything. Yeah, he, he, and it, it had to be something so grave that he could not risk leaving the country, even. Yeah, so it, it was uh, he, he, uh, his actions sort of he had something to hide. He had something to hide, and you know, I had three meetings with him in his last years. Yeah, he I was. I was. Himself. I was actually yeah. going to ask you actually how many times you met yeah. him. Yeah, yeah, and, three and, times. And what your impressions of him were. Well. He was extremely charming, he, or he could be, and, and then when he got mad at you, you know, hell wouldn't have him because he, uh, he was very frightening when he got mad, and he did get mad at me for asking questions about mm. the decisions he made in keeping Elvis in Vegas for so long and about the uh, choices of song material. But he, he was very kind to me, and I, I have to say that I liked him quite a bit, despite all of these mistakes that we all feel that he made in managing Elvis's career. And, of course, he always said he'd never managed his life, only his career. But that's that's not entirely true. No, it isn't. No. But uh, he also, just the way he 
he conducted himself in public was looking back at that was he conducted himself and the way he held his body and the way he insisted on always having he never had his back to the room he had to sit where he could see everybody coming in and going he lived his life and he conducted his day-to-day activities as a person who was you know to use the old movie lingo on the lamb somebody who was who had to be aware of who was in the room and could make his exit if need be he just lived his life as someone who had a secret that he had to fiercely protect and he could he could leave quite suddenly if he needed to I've often questioned whether he was a sociopath now that the definition here is they can't understand others feelings they'll often they'll often break rules or make impulsive decisions without feeling guilty for the harm they cause may also use mind games to control friends family members co-workers and even strangers they may also be perceived as charismatic or charming they'll use lies to deceive others use false identities or nick or nicknames for personal gain uh, they are cold uh, and they do not show emotions. Uh, they use humor, intelligence or charisma to manipulate others. And they can easily become addicted to drugs, alcohol or other substances. Now, we we pretty sure that he wasn't a drug addict and he very rarely drank. But we do know that he was addicted to gambling. Yes, Absolutely. So there's a few pointers there which could fall into uh, the category that we're discussing. Um, Nicknames and, and, you know, going under false identities. I mean, he did go under a false identity. Yes. Um, He did use a lot of humor. He was intelligent. I think, think, you know, uh, he was an intelligent human being. Extremely. Extremely. Um, Yep. somebody, Somebody said to me, he had it from the eyebrows up. I love that. He had it from the <laughs> eyebrows up. Yeah. Yeah, but he was cunning. He wasn't just smart. He was cunning. Hmm. And and you have to ask yourself, why did he need to be so cunning? But, you know, then the biggest question I had, uh, and it took me a year to get a letter from the State Department answering my question, that he never applied to be a U.S. citizen. So, of course, the, the question is, well, why not? He also never took his his army pension he wanted it was as if none of that had ever happened uh but but the army records bear out that he was entitled to that now you know we know that colonel tom parker was not a person to turn a back on a, on a dollar much less you know a significant amount of pay particularly when he left the army or was or was discharged honorably and went into the, the carnival world here which is what he was doing in holland as well for the most part, although he was also loading heavy cargo onto ships, but he worked in carnivals over there. But there were just a lot of questions that, uh, uh, or situations that didn't add up to a normal life. And uh, I can't say with certainty that he murdered that girl, but his family in Holland and his family here have said to me that after reading the book, they could see that this might have happened if only as an accident that he got angry with her 
and picked up something and hit her, and not meaning to kill her, because whoever whoever did kill that girl tore up clothing in her apartment and tried to wrap her head wound, tried to keep her from bleeding to death. And uh, so it was it was an accident, whoever killed her. Mm-hmm. But just the way, and I can ascertain that he fled to America in that window of time in which she was killed. Yeah, that it, I do know. It's yeah. it's it's uh, it's just a big big question mark. It, we'll probably never know for sure, but um, right, it's a huge question mark. Yeah. Another question uh, is Elvis's knowledge of Parker's nationality. Um, personally, yeah. I think he knew. I do. I do think that Elvis knew. Well, that is kind of a murky field. I mean, uh, I believe it's Lamar who said that when the Colonel's brother came over here, yeah, and the, the Colonel's brother came in the '60s because early '60s because uh, the nephew kept writing these letters and asking questions, and so that led to a, a visit from his father, uh, Advan Cal Senior. Lamar remembered meeting him, the brother. I don't really know the answer other than what's in my book uh, or whether Elvis put it together that he was here illegally. Uh, if he did, and if he did, he didn't make a big thing out of it to the guys, for sure. Well, I think uh, maybe Elvis knew but didn't want to know. You know, in mm-hmm. other words, he, mm-hmm. he just sort of thought, well, you know, things are going so well. He's my manager. We're making money. Things are great. You know, why rock the boat? I know, but I don't want to know. That's what I think. Anyway, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I don't. I, I, you could I, be absolutely right. I, I just don't know how he couldn't have known. I mean, you know, when, when because Parker actually in, in, uh, introduced um, his brother to Elvis on a movie set in the early sixties, didn't he? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, right. how, you know, so how would he have passed it off? As <laughs> yeah, I, I do think he knew. I really do think he knew. Except he could have come up with some cockamamie story about. Of being separated at birth and one being oh, adopted yeah. by a Dutch family. I mean, you know, there was his imagination was yeah. wide, and he loved he loved funny stories. I mean, he loved getting a story on anybody. I could absolutely see him making up something like that. Uh, but if Elvis did know, it, it certainly wasn't something he went around to all the guys and said, "Guess what?" Yeah, you know, it was nothing like that. Yeah. yeah, because when Lamar was working with Albert Goldman, I think he rang up the colonel and asked him, he'd heard a rumor that he was uh, yes. Dutch. And he said, why didn't you tell me? And uh, Colonel Parker said, well, you never asked. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, you know, right. he strikes me as you, he had an answer for everything. You know, he would be very, very rarely caught off guard. Exactly. You know, I have um, all of Lamar's correspondence with Albert Goldman. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, pretty interesting stuff. I would have loved to have spoken to Lamar. I I thought he was hysterical. <laughs> he was very funny, but um, he he could be quite formidable. He could be quite scary himself, and um, I think buried deep down in him there was a cruel streak, and uh, you could see how it would have developed, having been made fun of for his size for so long, and even Elvis making jokes, humiliating him, but. You know, he tells that story in the the Mafia book about taking a cattle prod to to um, the chimpanzee scatter. Oh yeah. Was that, was that the name Scatter? Scatter. That, yeah, you got it. Name? Yeah. Um, I knew somebody else that had a chimp. I had to stop and figure out the different names for a second. 
But, you know, he probably didn't do that. He said he did that when it was in the bathtub, to kind of electrocute him or he wanted to do that. I, you know, it's hard to believe that that really happened. Lamar could spin a good yarn sometimes. But uh, in spending time with him, I knew that there were subjects that are things that you just didn't ask of him unless he was in uh, a particularly good mood because, because I saw that streak in him that would be, um, that was really scary. I mean, I used to joke to my friends when I was working on this that if I, I read... Um, you know, and he picked up the newspaper and I read that he, he was an axe murderer by night and a mild-mannered music publisher by day. It wouldn't surprise me. There was a, there was some pathology there, I think. Yeah. But a fascinating guy, fascinating guy, and bright, 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 bright. I mean, yeah. the way he could just spin out that language that you read on the page there that's hilarious. Uh, he was like that in, in real life. Yeah. Um, what, do you, what do you think of... Uh, Parker's management style and the financial arrangement. I mean, you know, there's a lot been said about the 50-50 split. Well, you know, Lamar kind of defended that, I remember, who said uh, in the early days there were a lot of country music artists who had that kind of arrangement with their manager. Certainly someone who was able to bring huge amounts of money in should not have taken such a large cut and, and you know it, it was in stages it's it's really not as clear-cut as saying taking 50 percent um although it's it makes for good shorthand but it changed that percentage changed through the years and it changed uh sometimes on certain kinds of deals but by the time what i think is just particularly onerous is that by the time elvis was really ill in the 70s the colonel saw the inevitable coming and either figured he couldn't do anything to change it or didn't want to change it because the merchandising rights were really what was going to make huge money. He set up Boxcar Productions with Vernon, whereby he and Vernon did pretty well and Elvis got, you know, I think, maybe 20 percent. Yes, it was something um, it was something very low compared, yeah, <laughs> compared to what yeah. Colonel Parker was getting. Right. That's right. So he just put the, the wheels in motion, whereby when Elvis did die, he would, he, he, he really came, I think I figured it up, he, he came to have about 80% of Elvis's name and likeness by the time Elvis died. Wow. And all these various deals. Because as, as I say, it was, you know, it was some part of this, a different percentage of this, or, but it, it came to about 80, 80%. Yeah. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of people feel that he didn't care about Elvis. It was all about the dollar. Well, you know, I have kind of an interesting theory about this. Again, it's a theory, just as it's a theory that he killed that woman in Holland. I can't, okay. I can't say that he did. Okay. But here's, here's what, I'm, what I think about that. You know, he had a stepson, Bobby Ross. Yes. And he had almost no affection for Bobby Ross when he was his full-fledged stepson. So I'm thinking that if you come over here from a foreign country and you barely know the language and you arrive with no clothing and no papers and no money and you don't go to pick up your final pay when the boat docks, your secret or whatever it is you're trying to hide is so pervasive that you can't allow yourself to get really close to a lot of people so that they would know this. Hmm. And so 
Now, remember, he's got somebody in Holland who's reporting to him on the comings and goings and life and death of his family, so he still cares. But whatever is going on in his mind or happened in Holland is so horrific that he cannot take the chance of contacting his family in those early years and wouldn't have at all if his brother, nephew, hadn't reached out. Mm. So he's, he's unable to form attachments uh, that put him in a vulnerable position. And that may have been part of his relationship with Elvis, that he, he, you know, I always say that he used Elvis as kind of a human shield, sword and shield against whatever this was that was in his background. And so he certainly could not allow himself to be vulnerable with Elvis or Vernon. So did he, did he care about Elvis? Um, he has said, he publicly said, sure, I loved him. Hmm. But, um, and you know, there's that photograph of him in the meditation garden with his hat off, I think it is, at the graves. Yes, I've that, seen I that. Think just yeah. A, yeah, I think maybe just a phantom. But I think that's a very poignant photograph. Uh, you know, I, I do wonder if he just could not really allow himself to love or to be vulnerable because of whatever was in his past. When I first saw that photograph, I wasn't 100% convinced it was him. Um, but uh, you persuaded me otherwise. Oh, yeah, it is. It <laughs> yeah. is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we, we've covered uh, we've covered most of that. Uh, I've got here notes like Vegas and touring and then the gambling debts that uh, Parker accrued. And what, probably a lot of people have said that's one of the reasons why Elvis was in Vegas so long is because, you know, he was he was Parker's mark. Um, yeah. As long as he had Elvis performing and bringing in the dollars, uh, he could literally gamble as as much as he liked. Well, that's pretty much what Alex Shufi said, you know, who's head of the hotel. In the, uh, in the Guardian ad litem report that Blanchard Toole got up when the, um, when the state of Tennessee uh, pretty much forced the estate to, to, to sue Parker, this Guardian ad litem report was generated, and, and that's uh, what Alex Shufi said. Uh, you know, Elvis didn't ever know how many concerts he gave to, to pay off gambling debts. Uh, so, you know, it's a complicated, it's a, it's a really, nobody could bring Colonel Parker down except Colonel Parker. And, mm. and he managed to do it in some ways. It's funny, he, he often war, warned the boys uh, don't get into gambling. Uh, yes, and, and, yes. Uh, but, but it hooked him. Maybe he, was, maybe he was warning them because he was hooked. Yeah, and also because, of course, he'd seen it in the carnivals uh, uh, yeah. so much and yeah. took advantage of those people in the carnivals. And, and you know, there was this fellow, Byron Raphael, that I found who, who um, had uh, worked for William Morris, and then the colonel saw that he was kind of an easy touch and got him assigned to him and then used him as a spy with the Morris agency. And uh, this was this was right at the beginning of Elvis's career, uh, or at least the, the movie career. And um, Byron ended up getting hooked on gambling. And Parker tried to keep him from letting that happen, but was pretty unsuccessful. So, yeah, he knew from the, you know, the get-go that once you get hooked, you're, you're dead, and yet fell to it himself, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, the book won the CMA Media Achievement Award and the Belmont Book Award in 2004. So that was a, a great success. And, uh, it was. And, and one of my favorite books, definitely. 
Oh, thank you. Thank you. I think it's the best book I've done. The uh, the next book was uh, Baby Let's Play House, Elvis Presley and the Women Who Loved Him. And that was written in 2010? Uh, yes, it was pub published in January of 2010. So written over a period of time, um, about 2006 or so through 2009. Lots and lots and lots of interviews, I would imagine, for that. Yes, lots. Yeah, not as many as the Colonel, though, I don't think. Uh, that that really was a test of all my reportage. I'll, I'll tell you, the Colonel, the Colonel really helped me grow as a reporter. But um, but yes, a lot of interviews for Baby Let's Play House, for sure. Yeah. Um, I, I'd just like to run through a few, actually. Dixie Locke. Did you get to speak to Dixie? No, I didn't. Dixie, you know, some, some, some people want to be paid for their time to be interviewed, and that's... Uh, in America, we call it checkbook journalism. Yeah. And that's always drilled into journalists that you don't do that, uh, that the information could be skewed uh, if, if you've paid someone for an interview. So that was the situation there. And so, no, I had to rely on previously published uh, information, interviews with her for that. Uh, Barbara Hearn. Um... Yes, I was absolutely thrilled to find Barbara Hearn. Uh, that was before she was really doing a lot of interviews and um, uh, she's just one of the best friends I made on that project, and I adore her. She um, she was uh, the summer of 1956. She started going out with Elvis, I believe, and she carried on seeing him on and off. And she said that when she met, when he came out of the army in 1960, she went up to uh, Graceland, and she knew straight away that he wasn't the same boy that she knew uh, before he went in the army. She said uh, that the death of his mother had changed him. Well, yes, and you know she knew she knew Gladys. Um, she'd known the family for quite a while, I believe, before stardom really hit. She she knew Gladys well. Gladys liked her. You know, Barbara's. I don't know if you talked with Barbara yet, but she's just a lovely, easy person to talk with, with with a lot of heart. And so I can see where Gladys. Um, would have enjoyed that. I think she used to, uh, they used to sit there and talk and snap beans or whole peas or something like that together. And of course, um, Barbara's there in the behind the scenes of the Tupelo Fair, the first show. Well, there's uh, those, the uh, there's those lovely, charming photographs taken by uh, Alworth Themer. Uh, yes, in, of course. In, in, at uh, Audubon Drive. Audubon Drive, yeah, yeah. Uh, July the 4th. Yes, that's right. And then she she was the first person Elvis showed uh, Graceland to after he bought it. Oh right. And uh, yeah, and then when Gladys was ill and in the hospital, she went to see her, and they had a nice rapport. I often think about what would have happened if he'd married Barbara or if he'd married Anita, um, someone who was really grounded, and uh, maybe wouldn't have. <laughs> stood for a lot of behavior that kind of got him in trouble later later yeah. on. Yeah, another girl that strikes me like that would be uh, June Juanico. Yes, yes. June was quite sort but of down to earth, wasn't she? Yeah. Yes, but especially Barbara, uh, really, of all the, of the three, because she was a Memphis girl, number one, and she was not in show business and had no real desire to be in show business. But she was just a very solid person with excellent values that, and, and someone that Gladys approved of, certainly. And, 
had known him before, before things got too crazy. So, and she's awfully smart, you know, Barbara. And mm -hmm. uh, I think one of the reasons she was, the last time she saw him, she was she was ready to, to leave Graceland because she couldn't stand the, the, the yes man kind of behavior from the guys and, mm -hmm. and uh, that she, she hated to see that path that, that Elvis was going down. So I, I, I really, I mean, she certainly has had a wonderful marriage to uh, Jim Smith, who's just an impeccable guy. And uh, I think um, she had a much happier life than she would have had with Elvis. Uh, but uh, as from the thinking about how Elvis might have turned out had he married her, it's uh, sometimes I get kind of wist wistful thinking about it. Yeah, but, you it, know, who knows if that would have worked out. It, it would have been complex. Whoever married Elvis, they would have had to have shared him with the guys and the fans. Right, right. You know, because one of the things that Priscilla complained about is that she had very little alone time with him. I mean, the guys were there all the time. And I think many times she would say, couldn't it just be us? And he said, well, you know, I like having the guys here. Mm. That's pretty tough for a woman to take. But I think she probably was a little bit naive because she must have known what it was like yes. because she'd been living at, uh, well, she was supposed to have been living on Vermitage Road and later Dolan Drive. Of course, mm -hmm. we, we all know now that she was in Graceland. So, wow. so she must have known the score prior to 1967. Maybe she thought Elvis would change, marriage would change him. But Well, when you're as young as she was, uh, you do have ideas like that, that someone mm. will change mm. when you <laughs> when you get a few years under your belt, you realize that people rarely change. <laughs> but yes, that, that could have been the situation. Uh, I've got Deborah Paget written down as well. Now, she, uh, people say that uh, he was smitten by Deborah. Um, yes. But she wasn't interested. I think she was at the time dating Howard Hughes in 1956. Well, certainly her mother did not approve of this uh, young hooligan. So... Uh, <laughs> Uh, that, that you know strikes strikes against him there, but of course she's important because she became this kind of ideal in his eyes, and a lot of people talk about the similarity of Deborah Paget and Priscilla. Mm, yeah, yeah, there was a definite resemblance there. Um, Natalie Wood was around about the same time in '56, I think, wasn't she? Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. She's gone on record as saying that she was actually disappointed by Elvis. Uh, she yes. she said he could sing, but he could do very little else, which was obviously al alluding to the fact that he, he wouldn't consummate the relationship. I would yeah, imagine. well, I think you know she she was a very worldly girl, and uh, <laughs> yeah, and uh, I think he was too too southern, too polite, too everything that didn't quite measure up to what she had in mind. I think um, Gladys and uh, Parker had kind of warned Elvis. You know, be be careful because if you get a girl into trouble, you know your your career is over. Yes. So I think he had that at the back of his mind the whole time. Well, there sure were a lot of women. Oh my goodness, there are a lot of women. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, of course, during the movie years, I mean, we we've got people like Anne Helm, uh, Shelley Fabares, uh, Anne Margaret. Of course, Anne Margaret was a big one. Uh, Mary yeah. Tyler Moore, you know, I mean, the list is endless. I've actually got down here that Stella Stevens didn't like him. She was a co-star of Girls, Girls, Girls. And, and uh, I don't know whether that's a rumor or not, but she, she never she never saw eye to eye with him. 
Yeah, I think um, there's something in the book about that with, with a quote from her. I, I was not successful in getting an interview with her, but back to Mary Tyler Moore. I think that is one, the one leading uh, lady that he actually didn't uh, pursue or try to pursue. Yeah, she, she's those. she's quoted as yeah. saying, uh, one uh, co-star didn't sleep with him and guess who it was, you know, or something like that. I can't remember the, the yeah. exact quote. But yeah. uh, Shelley Faberez didn't either because I think she was uh, dating a guy or she was married or something. So it was, that, was yes. purely, that was purely platonic as well. Um, yes, I think that was a good relationship, though. I think that was, uh, you know, one of the things I was fascinated by in writing that book is, is just how woman-centered he was. He loved women's company and not, I mean, he always did from the time he was a, a little boy. He liked being around girls um, and not necessarily, you know, the boy-girl thing, but just he loved the energy of women and girls. And, and he liked even as a, you know, in his 20s, and it never really stopped. He wanted to know what, what teenage girls thought, what, what made them happy, what, uh, what they thought of the music. He just, he liked, he liked just young girls of that age. He liked their energy and he, he liked the way they thought. And, uh, you know, you could kind of have a field day with that psychologically, but, um, but I think he, he always got a kick out of them, absolutely. Um, we, obviously, we just touched on Anne Margaret there, but that that was a big, big relationship in in Elvis's life. Yep. Actually, it's big for both of them. Yes, I think to this day, you know, she she guards uh, the details of that relationship very fiercely, and uh, which is a lovely thing to see, really. But I think uh, it's not only out of respect for Priscilla and Elvis's memory, but because she cared so deeply for him. Yeah. Yeah, she was known as the female Elvis at the time, wasn't she? Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. yes, yeah. Um, a lot of people say that they don't... With reason, with reason, you know, she's a very exciting performer. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. A lot of people said that uh, one of the reasons why the relationship broke down was because he would have expected Anne just to stay at home and be the, the wife, and she wanted a career of her own. That's probably a, a, a good contributing reason, but I think the main reason is that he kind of made a deal with Priscilla's dad. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I think he did. And uh, couldn't get out of that. Now, certainly the colonel wasn't going to let him out of that because uh, it hadn't been that long since, you know, the whole Jerry Lee Lewis thing had come down. Um, yeah, Jerry Lee Lewis had, had uh, marrying one of his cousins had happened, and it was scandalous in America. I don't know how it was received in Europe, but it's absolutely scandalous in America. Yes. And... Um, the colonel was pretty terrified that the news was going to get out that Elvis had been cohabitating with an underage girl. Uh, I think Priscilla's father held his feet to the fire as well as the colonel uh, on, on making good on his promise. Mm. So that took care of the Anne Margaret situation. Uh, we, we've got later girlfriends, uh, namely uh, Joyce Bova, Sybil Shepherd, Mindy Miller, of course, uh, Linda Thompson. And Ginger, yes. and Ginger Alden being the last yes. one. Yes. Uh, a very, very strong relationship with Linda, I believe. Um, a very strong relationship with Linda. Linda was really good for him. And, uh, or, you know, so much so that even Marty Lacker approved of that. And Marty didn't approve of much of it. <laughs> <anything>. <laughs> uh, yes. And, you know, it, it must have. Linda must have been an awfully patient person to have put up with, with his philandering for as long as she did and and having to rescue him from, you know, really some 
pretty close calls when he when his pill use got so, so exaggerated. I think she put up with quite a lot for a long time. Well, they were together initially twenty four seven. She said she never left his yes. side, which yes. which would put a great strain on a lot of relationships, to say the least. Well, I remember I interviewed Sheila Ryan at great length. Oh, I, I right. liked Sheila a lot. Uh, she was a, kind of a pitiful person and um, died not terribly long after we finished all of our interviewing. And and she was still rocked, really, by, by that experience. A lot, a lot of tears. I remember she talked to me that it was explained to her, I think it was Joe explained to her that if you were going to be Elvis's girlfriend, you had to you had to watch him 24-7. You did. This was part of the job of being Elvis's girlfriend. Hmm. And rescue him from situations when he got into trouble with, with pills and food. And it just, it, her nerves were just shattered by this and by uh, his temper, outbursts of his temper if she didn't want to go on a tour, for example. And she just really couldn't take it after a while. And uh, so you look at some of these younger girls who came after Sheila, um, including Ginger, uh, that, you know, girls were just not equipped to be a, a caretaker uh, to an addict, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. And as charming as he was, uh, and as thrilling as life would have been with him in many ways, it was kind of a horror show in an, in an awful lot of ways, too. Well, Ginger was only 19, um, so yes. it must have been very, very difficult for her. Yeah, extremely difficult, yeah. Um, and uh, Alicia Kerwin, I think, you know, these girls just were not, and then some even much farther down the line, girls who didn't last very long at all, it just was frightening. Uh, and the big age difference and, and uh, you know, the worlds were just so different. So, of course, this was a, a huge um disappointment to Elvis, who really wanted a woman with him all the time. You know, he, he really had trouble being alone. He did not like to be alone at all. You, you'll remember that somebody had to sleep in his room with him uh, in the early days if he didn't have a, uh, a girl. Um, he, there was sleepwalking. There were other kind of emotional problems about wrapped around sleep. So yes. um, I think it just was asking an awful lot of, of a a young girl who hadn't had experience with somebody who really was so needy, both emotionally and physically at that point of his life. Yeah, uh, I've uh, often heard and read that it wasn't uh, the physical side. The physical side, later on, it wasn't the physical side he was interested in. It was more just the companionship. Right, right. And I think that's true. So somebody that, to talk to, so be with him. That's quite sad in itself, I think, isn't it? Well, it is. It is. You know, his body was changing and um, he was having obvious health problems. I think he was clinically depressed. Yes, I and, think he was. Yep. And just wanted somebody to talk to, really, more than anything else. I think uh, um, one of the things was he didn't know who was there for Elvis and who was there just for the money. Yeah. Yeah. It would be a, yeah. a terrible situation to be in, wouldn't it? Yes. Terrible situation, is right. Um, you were in Memphis uh, just after Elvis passed away in August 1977 to cover it for uh, a magazine. Is that correct? No, I was at that time the the pop music critic for the Louisville paper, the Courier Journal. Okay. And um, when he died on the 16th of August, um, 
my editor called me and wanted me to go out to the south end of town here because uh, you'll remember that uh, Elvis's grandfather, Jesse, lived in Louisville. He had abandoned Minnie Mae and uh, moved up to Louisville and uh, had been here for quite a long time and he had uh, remarried. And so he was dead by the time Elvis died, but his, uh, his wife, Vera, was still here. And the paper sent me out to try to find her and interview her. And I was not successful in that, but uh, the next day, they put me and the star columnist for the paper, John Filiatro, on the company plane and flew us down to Memphis um, to cover the funeral and the whole scene down there. Yeah. And c could you just share with us, uh, you, you were at Graceland, you were, you were queuing to see uh, Elvis in, in laying in state, is that correct? Yes, and um, you were the first. Were, not, were you one of the first journalists to see Elvis in his casket? We were, John and I. We were, and how this happened was, um, you know, the fans were on uh, on the grounds, and the fans were lined up as far as you could see on either side of the columns down there, the pillars uh, on Elvis Presley Boulevard, and because it had been announced that that uh, the public was going to be allowed in to view Elvis's remains. And there were not a lot of press people at Graceland that day. And I think that there are a lot of reasons for that, but mostly because the national media uh, did not realize the impact that his death was going to have on the general public. So I remember there were some camera people and some print people, but you know, not a lot. We were sequestered from the, from the rest of the fans on the grounds. We were pretty close up to the door. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, I don't mean to imply that we were right at the door, but we were much farther up than the fans were allowed to get. It's so, so much so that it was a very surreal experience to be standing on the grounds of Graceland and mm -hmm. that close to the house. Mm -hmm. And a fellow came out. Uh, John and I were standing kind of apart from the, from the other reporters because, as I say, the, the, the bulk of them were, um, I think, local television, maybe some national people. But there weren't, there weren't a lot of people who were print, and he and I kind of stood over to the, apart from that group. And this fellow came out um, with a kind of a bullhorn or a megaphone sort of thing. And uh, I now know that was Dick Grobe, although at the time I, I didn't know his name. And he announced that, uh, that if there were members of the press who wished to, to go in and, and view Mr. Presley, that to line up, and he, he came over and he physically put his hand on my shoulder, I remember, the lineup behind these two. And, uh, and it was really just because we were standing apart, you know, from the yeah, others. Yeah. But I, you know, it was kind of like gulp, you know, uh, uh, John, you go first. No, you go first. Well, you go first. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, it was, it was kind of daunting, you know, really. And uh, they had him there in the, at the bottom of the stairs. And you could get quite close. You went in single file and you could get quite close, but you, you weren't allowed to stop. So you went in the front door, you saw him, you came back out the front door. I went in and I remember that there was a woman behind me who said, well, he looks like a tub. Oh my goodness. And I didn't really know what a tub, what, what, what did that mean? He looks like a tub. I guess she meant he was, was large. Hmm. But I was just kind of struck by 
I wasn't sure it was Elvis. I mean, first of all, he looked very, very white in the face. And I don't know if I thought he was going to be in a jumpsuit. I mean, I don't know what I expected, but but somehow he just didn't look like Elvis to me. And he had on a, a white business suit that I now know was a gift from Vernon, I think a Christmas gift. Mm-hmm. He had on a light blue dress shirt and a long silver tie. And, you know, we weren't used to seeing him dressed like that in, in private life, really, very much. I, I, I just came out of there and people said, well, what does he look like? And I said, well, he doesn't look like Elvis Presley. And then I thought, well, gosh, is this some big trick of the colonels? This is... So I, I, got, I sneaked back in line, and I went through again. I still was just perplexed as I'll get out. It, it just looked like a wax figure to me. And then I tried to get in again, and they pulled me out of line. Some guy pulled me out of line. He said, no, you're only supposed to go through once, and you've already been through twice. <laughs> so <laughs> so got caught. But now I know why he looked like a wax figure. I mean, he, you know, without trying to get too detailed about it, he had fallen on his face and had lain on his face essentially for quite a long time when blood rushes to your face in that situation. Yeah. And um, when the um, the EMS came, they did not realize they were working on Elvis Presley, trying to bring him back to life. And uh, they weren't even... They didn't even think he was Caucasian, quite frankly. So um, I'm sure that uh, the funeral home had to work a lot of tricks to make him look presentable. Cosmetics and, and so forth. Um, cosmetics, yeah. yeah. That's why he looked waxy. But yeah. it was not a wax figure. Elvis Presley is gone, unfortunately. And I don't care how many women come forth and say they had his baby in 1978 or 1980 or whatever. Uh, it's just not true. He is gone, unfortunately. Some some of the theories are just way far out. <laughs> yeah. Totally ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so for for one more time, that was Elvis Presley in the casket. It was. Yeah. I'm certain it was. Yeah. And yes. so and so am I. Even though I wasn't there, I am yeah. certain it was him. Yeah. I um. Uh, I did an interview with the writer Ray Connolly, as as I said to you earlier, uh, for this podcast a few months ago. And I asked Ray the same question I'm going to ask you now. And that is, in your opinion, what killed Elvis Presley? Um, I think a combination of fame, disappointment, and having to keep superhuman hours. The body can't just stay up for such a long time and then ex- expect to be able to fall asleep immediately and then mm. get up and do it again and do it again. Mm. So, but probably, if you had to narrow it down to one thing, uh, I would say disappointment at not being able to fulfill who he was. Yeah. Ray kind of said along the same sort of thing. He said outrageous fame killed him. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. In my opinion, uh, boredom killed Elvis Presley. Yeah. Now, yeah. people would say, well, no, it was the drugs or it was the food or it was the movies or. But I could put all that under one heading and just say boredom. And that's what I think killed Elvis Presley. Boredom. Well, except that he was again, he was clinically depressed. So, of course, why was he clinically depressed? Yeah. yeah. Uh, because he wasn't allowed to be all he could be. And, you know, he did a darn good job of, of it. Uh, today, performers have whole teams of managers and choreographers and 
what have you to help them figure out the next career move. And Elvis had none of that. Elvis just yeah, was Elvis. I mean, he, there was no blueprint for um, what, you know, Elvis, uh, you know, he was the first, you know, there was, yes. there, there was nothing to refer back to as, oh, well, this is the way we should do it because he was just the trailblazer. Yes, exactly. Just can I just back up a little bit and ask you about uh, Parker at Elvis's funeral, his behavior and so forth. There was talk that he was in a baseball cap and uh, and a Hawaiian shirt. Uh, yes. And uh, you know he he said to somebody as well they were going to wear a tie and he said you never wore a tie for him when he was alive take it off. Right. Uh, dress the way Elvis knew you. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That that was Although his. Yeah, it, it, it seemed to signal disrespect, uh, of course, but uh, maybe he had a point in that. But it was jarring to think of the manager of the greatest entertainer of all time uh, coming to the funeral dressed as the carnival barker, in, in essence. Yeah. Um, but, but maybe he had a point. Um, I've thought about that a lot through, through the years. Um, and it was August, and August in Memphis is beastly. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, maybe that was uh, a part of it as well. Well, I was there in June, and it was fairly uh, tropic then. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I, can't, I can't begin to imagine what it must be like in, in August. It's really steamy. It's terrible. Uh, there's another question I'd like to ask you as well. If you could have sat down alone with Elvis for a few minutes, what would you have uh, said to him or what questions would you have asked? Well, I'm fascinated by the Elvis of 1956. That's that's really my era. And I remember I was six, and so I have this, this very strong memory of seeing him on Ed Sullivan for the first time. But uh, as I researched him through the years, I, I never got past really just being awed at what an original he was. And that made me think, you know, I mean, this is a guy who was walking around with a Tony home permanent before he was even famous. And I would love to know where he got, uh, I would have to ask him, you know, where he got the nerve to dress like that and move like that uh, in public. Because that, you know, if you weren't alive in 1956 when he came on the national scene, you really can't imagine how outrageous he was and how shocking it was to see him even though it was it was thrilling of course but it really was I mean jaw-dropping in polite society to see a young man come out on stage and move like that and then you know it wasn't too long before the pelvic thrusts started and that was revolutionary and when of course when he was asked about it he took umbrage at it and and uh, didn't like being called Elvis the pelvis and and such nicknames but um and he claimed that he just you know he wasn't conscious of it that he just moved with the beat but that couldn't have been entirely true and we know and certainly i've interviewed people for baby let's play house and women who actually taught him certain uh, dance moves and stage moves so i would love to know just where he got the nerve to do it because it was something that's what i would have asked him and would you have given him any advice or anything about the way his life was going, or would would you have would you have wanted to have met Elvis in the seventies? Would it have been more you would have wanted to have met him in the fifties? Uh, well, 
I would like to have known him in the 50s if I'd have been uh, adult enough to know him in the 50s. But, mm. you know, uh, I, I, someone I did know was Tammy Wynette. Right. Who had a similar problem with Demerol. And Elvis loved Demerol. Mm. And Tammy Wynette died at the age of 55. But in the years leading up to that death, she looked ancient because she had wrecked her health with drugs. And I remember saying to her manager, do something. She is dying in front of us. But there was no stopping it. Mm. And there was no stopping it with Elvis either. And so even if I'd had the nerve to say, you look ill, you, you look unhealthy, I really hope you'll take some time off and get your life together, it wouldn't have changed the final story. Once you get so far down in addiction, you can't get out. I actually think uh, I heard a story that uh, Colonel Parker broached it with him once, and he said, it's okay, Colonel, I know what I'm doing, it's my business. Well, I never, Colonel always uh, insisted, uh, at least publicly, that, that uh, he, he had no idea that Elvis was, was dependent on prescription drugs. Mm. So I'd love to see the source for that. It would be educational for me. Um, he had to have known, of course, he had to have known for a number of reasons, but maintained, as far as I know, that he, he never knew. I think, uh, I'll have to double check this, but I think it was in the second Peter Goralnik book, uh, okay. Careless love, but don't quote me uh -huh. on that. Don't quote me on that. Yeah. But I think it might have I, been. I understand. Yeah, we read. We've read. We've read so much. Sometimes yes. it's very hard to figure out where things came from. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Now, um, are all your books, the books that we've discussed, still available? Are they they're still in print? Well, the the Alan Fortis book is not in print. I, his son and I have talked about doing an e-book to make it available. If if we thought there would be enough demand for it, I'm sure we would. The, the kernel is st is still in print in a trade paperback, okay. meaning the same size as a hardcover but with soft covers, and uh, it's also available in Kindle and uh, as an audio book. And uh, the Memphis Mafia book is, as I say, there are 195 copies left in the <laughs> publishing house. <laughs> Get yours <laughs> now. <laughs> Get yours now. <laughs> and and I don't know the future of that book. Uh, I would hope that. Uh, if they decide not to reprint, we would find a new publisher for it. Uh, Babyless Playhouse is available in um, soft cover, and um, there's still some hard covers floating around, but from you know third parties. And I'm working with a tremendous uh, professional book reader for an audiobook, and we're we're up to page. I think we're up to page, uh, not page, but chapter 20. She she records it. And then she sends it to me, and I mark. Uh, it's, it's a painstaking process where in the recording she's misspoken or mispronounced something. And mm -hmm. so uh, um, I think there are 33 chapters of that book. But I, I'm hoping that next year there will be an audiobook for um, Baby Let's Play House. Great, great. It's what right. does uh, Alan and Nash do these days? Well, I'm working on um, I'm working on a book about a friend of mine who unfortunately had the same addiction as Elvis, and it also took her life. And uh, her family and I tried for 16 years to change the course of that fate. And um, we were unsuccessful. And that was a very, very hard thing to, to watch and um, be powerless uh, to do anything about, even though we had her in three or four rehabs through the years. And um, 
it's just a book I feel compelled to write to honor her, actually, and to help other people who have had addiction in their families um, get get through that sense of guilt and loss that uh, inevitably comes with, with people who somehow are, are not able to climb out of it. That sounds a very sad tale. It is a sad tale. It is. But, you know, in, in dealing with my friend whose name was Elizabeth, uh, I certainly had more empathy and sympathy for the, the people people around Elvis, the guys especially, and Dr. Nick perhaps. And It's a very, very difficult situation for everyone to be in uh, with someone who falls under that. It's been a, a pleasure talking to you tonight. It really has. I've enjoyed it, Steve. Thank you so much. That's all for this episode from Elvis, the Ultimate Fan Channel. A big thanks to Alana for joining me today. I think you'll agree she was a fascinating guest, and I would highly recommend all her books. You can email the show at ElvisTheUltimateFanChannel at gmail.com. You can listen to this channel on all good podcast providers, such as Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Pocket Casts, to name just a few. You can also find the channel on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join me next time for another episode from Elvis the Ultimate Fan Channel podcast. <laughs>